Let's turn in our Bibles then to the very first chapter of the book of Hebrews, or the book to the Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews. I'm going to be reading from verse 1 down to the end of the chapter, verse 14. But we'll not be obviously looking at all those. One or two or three, maybe. Let me read it to you. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, though whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again... I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels spirits and, make, and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will fold them up. And they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies my footstools? Are they all not ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Amen. Feels a little bit odd to stop there because the, though there is a, the continuation on the, the therefore, uh, but we have to stop because I'm not going to read a whole, a whole book. I want to look at these, these beginnings, the introduction, if it was indeed an introduction, Honestly, verses 1 to 4, which we'll try and look at today, I can't promise I'll get through them, but we'll try and look at them. They're more a declaration. They're more a, a, a statement, a, a, a proclamation. He is proclaiming something, fact. And then the rest of the book is really, or the rest of the, the homily letter sermon 
is the unpacking of that statement that he makes from verses 1 to 4. Now, in the original Greek, which I thought was interesting, verses 1 to 4 is just one sentence. It's one long declaration. It's not divided up. It's not broken up into parts. He is making this gigantic, monolithic, mighty statement. And it's like a showman who wants to grab your attention. He wants to make a statement in order that you look at him, that you hear him, that you you are paying attention. It's shock value. He's laying all his cards on the table, unashamed, unabashed, unafraid. He's making the statement. Now, In order for us to understand the book of Hebrews, there are some things we must know in advance. John MacArthur makes a really good point in that the key to understanding the book of Hebrews is to, or the letter to the Hebrews, the epistle, is to understand to whom it is written to. And John MacArthur identifies three groups that are spoken to within the confines of the 13 chapters of the epistle or the homily or the letter, whatever this is. He firstly points out that the writer, whom we do not know, is not addressed. The writer is addressing, is speaking to believing Jews. Jews who have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. They are believers, just like you and I, They are fully invested, but they're still living in that Jewish context. The second group that John MacArthur identifies is Jews who have a head knowledge about Jesus. They recognize that Jesus is something more than just a prophet. They recognize that Jesus has come from God and uh, was an influential figure. They're not quite sure about the details. They're not quite sure about everything, the divinity of Christ. But they believe that Jesus was from God. But yet their hearts have not trusted in him. And that perhaps by some form or fashion, they are afraid to trust in Jesus because of the influence of other Jews. Just as many Jews believed in Jesus, yet were afraid to follow him, the Gospels tell us, because of the fear of the Jews. Because they were afraid of being put out of the synagogues. So again, MacArthur addresses these two two factions. The believers, the followers, the disciples. And then secondly, this other group who have a head knowledge, but lack a heart knowledge. They recognize Jesus as being somebody important, but they're not quite sure who he is. And then the third group being ethnic Jews, nominal Jews. People who belong to the Jewish religious system, but yet reject Jesus. They have no time for him. There is an absence of any kind of faith within their heart. They are stripped Holders to tradition. They're the ones who would elevate the traditions, the rituals, the ceremonies of, uh, I was going to say Islam. No, that's not what I meant. Completely wrong. 
of Judaism. And they're still holding to the, the main pillars of their religious system. Sacrifices. Temple worship. Law keeping in order to please God. So MacArthur points this out in order that, that we might understand. It's part of the key of really understanding this letter. Because you and I are Gentiles. And we are 2,000 years after this book was written, more or less. And for you and I, it's very difficult to understand the context in which it was written here. Now, the Holy Spirit caused this book to be written and recorded and kept in order that we who are Gentile Christians, we who have no connection to Israel and no heritage, no real understanding, that you and I can have an insight into understanding what God has done for us and how that work of God is greater than that which came before. How Jesus is greater than the Israel religious system. And that really is the theme of the book. The supremacy, the superiority of Jesus over all things related to the old covenant. How that there is faith, or sorry, life in no other name than in the name of Jesus. And the writer wants the people to know that. And so, as John MacArthur points out, this key to understanding, I would add to that, I'm not adding to the works of John MacArthur because that's always a dangerous thing to do. But I, I would think that not only is it important to understand who it was written to, but in the, the time and in the purpose of why it was written. What was going on that he needed to write this? Well, first of all, we, we understand that it was a very early letter that was written. It was, it's written very early. Sometime between 30 to 60-something to, um, AD. Certainly before the destruction of the temple. Very early letter. What was going on at that time? Persecution. Christians were going through terrible persecution. Not just simply from the Romans, but pre-Roman persecution was going on. The Jews, the religious system was ejecting the Christian Jews from its ranks. They were being excluded from the temple they were no longer being allowed to come into the temple grounds to worship. They were, the Christians were the ones who were now saying, you no longer had to offer up sacrifices because Jesus is our sacrifice. It's done. And the religious hierarchy of the day was making money from the sacrifices. That's how, that was their business. You sacrifice this much of the sheep and I get the rest. And then they sold the meat of the sheep that was sacrificed. And they then received the profit of it. They sold you the sheep. And then you sacrificed it. When you sacrificed it to the temple, they took a part of the sheep. But the rest of the carcass belonged to the priesthood. And then they butchered it and sold it in the marketplace and made a fortune. Probably sold it to the Romans. Made a fortune of it. And so, 
in response to the Christians and their worship of Jesus and their stopping of these temple practices, the traditions that were going on, they were being excluded and they were being hunted down. Remember the Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul was Saul and Saul was a Christian hunter. He was an inquisitor. He was one who sought out heretics, put them to death, imprisoned them. And that, that was going on in great form and fashion. And so when we reread the book of Hebrews, we're reading a, obviously a pastor, obviously someone who is deeply concerned about the well-being of the Jewish Christians. And he wants them to persevere. He wants them to continue in the faith, to go from glory to glory and not to give up. When he writes, he's writing in a very exhortational form. He exposits Old Testament and then he says, and so therefore, and he encourages people to continue on in the faith, reminding them what has happened in the past in order that they may stand fast steadfast in the present and that they might succeed in the future. So it's very important for us that when we are reading and looking and understanding the epistle of, to the Hebrews or the homily, a sermon, that we understand why it was being written. What is, what is he trying to say? And he's trying to encourage, first of all, these Believers to stand fast in their faith, to keep on going. Secondly, he's addressing these in-betweeners. This were these people who are open to Jesus, but yet because of the fear of being excluded and put out, the fear of being seen odd and weird and part of a cult, they draw back. They go begin to practice Judaism again. What was the greatest single threat to the church in the first century? It wasn't Gnosticism. It wasn't the Romans. It was Judaizers. It was the people who went around behind Paul trying to recruit people to the religion of Israel. Yes, we believe in Jesus, but at the same time, we must keep the sacrifices. We must circumcise. We must... Continue in the form and practice of the old covenant. For them, in their minds, it wasn't old covenant. It was the continuation of the covenant. And so this letter is written to those in-betweeners, those, I call them hesitizers. <laughs> they, they were back and forth. They would really, really like to because they see that it's right and real and it's attractive to them. But at the same time, they're afraid. They're motivated by the intimidating forces. And so they try and find a middle road. They're trying to find an in-between path where they can trust in Jesus, but at the same time, Practice the practices, the ceremonies, the rituals, the sacrifices of Israel to keep placate and keep happy the religious people. 
And then people won't speak about them. People won't talk about them. People will just treat them like they're normal. And so the writer here is writing to them. The Holy Spirit through this writer is writing to them, exhorting them. We all know what exhorting means, don't we? We've talked about this many times. When Martin and I were in the gym this week on Wednesday, Martin was lifting and I would stand beside him and I said, come on, one more. Stretch out those arms. Lift up that weight. Breathe. Keep going. Two more. Three more. Because I count one, two, three, five. More, more, more. And there was that, that, keep going. And you could see Martin wasn't going to give up or give in. Why? Because there was someone there exhorting him to do more than he felt that he could do. And he did it. Performed wonderfully. We were there for like two hours or something. It was awesome. We had a great time. But that exhort, exhortation, that, that helpful voice, that, that hand lifting it up, that holding the two fingers holding the weight is needed. We as human beings, we need that voice every now and again just to help push us on. Where we stand resting on the knife blade of indecision. Where it's very possible we can fall back and fall into. Very possible we can move forward. But we just need that little gentle push or pull. That little gentle expression of, of belief. And that the writer here is doing that. He's saying to those in-betweeners, don't go back. Don't falter and fail. You've come far, but not far enough. Now you must come all the way. And he explains to them the dangers of what happens for those who reject or don't follow all the way. And then he speaks to the third group, of course. These deniers, these rejectors, these scoffers and mockers. And he warns them in all clear language the dangers of rejecting Jesus, the dangers of trusting in the old, in man-made, constructed traditions and rituals. He speaks to them of the obsoleteness, the, the, that the time of Israel's old religion has passed, and that the wages of their sin and the wages of their unbelief and the dangers of it and as a good pastor stroke evangelist he calls them to faith he is pleading with them at times in the text for them not to be cut off from the work that God is doing and so we're here in the very first verses and we're armed. Our minds are now charged with the understanding that when we read this book, we understand that God is speaking primarily to the Hebrews at that time. But then the Holy Spirit, through the writer, through the book, through all ages, down through the centuries, all the way to ourselves here today. And that there is a message here for us. There is instruction here for us. There is exhortation here for us. It has been said. I read it in one of the commentaries that I read this week. I can't remember who said it. I don't remember. 
But this, the, the epistle of the Hebrews is probably the most Christ, Christ-centric of all the epistles. That means it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. No matter what he's talking about, it's about Jesus in everything. And also, it is perhaps the most gospel-centered message. It is talking about the importance and the significance and the sufficiency of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How we cannot add to it. By adding to it, we simply take away from it. And so as we, we examine this book and as we go through it, it'll have much to say. And I hope that it blesses your hearts as it has begun to bless mine. And we begin to see Jesus Christ in his fullness. In all that he has done for us and all of what he is doing for us and all that he will do for us. So as we're looking, we're going to dive into it right now. Oh, I get goosebumps. Beginning a new book. It says in verse 1, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets. Begins with God. God. I love that. He doesn't try and prove God exists. Doesn't try and... Uh, have a discussion or a debate with you. God. God. And then, with the acknowledgement that God exists, God is real. God has always existed. And if God is real, well then surely God must have tried or communicated. How has God shown himself? And here, he says, who at various times and in various ways has Spoken. God has spoken. I, I don't know about yourselves, but whenever I, I have talked to unbelievers in the past, and they say, well, where is God? How can the world be the way that it is if, if God's real? Why has God never communicated? Why has God never shown himself? Why has he not come down and revealed himself? And I, I often say, have you never read the story about Jesus? <laughs> The Bible tells us that God has spoken. God has communicated. God has made known his will to mankind. Here we're told in various times and in various ways. I don't need to tell you the Bible stories. We could go through the Old Testament. The writer here doesn't fill in the details. He doesn't go into the, the minutiae. He just says, you know the Old Testament. God has spoken in many ways, in many times before. Too many times. Through dreams, through visions, through angelic appearances, through supernatural means. There have been various different ways that God, through plagues, sicknesses, through darkness, through death. God has in many, many ways, in many, many times, revealed himself, has communicated his will in order that he might make himself known and clear. That God was not, did not limit his communication to man. 
in any shape, form, or fashion. And we have the record of that in the Old Testament. We have the many times that angels have appeared, that God spoke to someone. We see that God has communicated in the past powerfully to people. But then the writer says this, has in these last days, verse 2, spoken to us by his son. In the Greek, it doesn't have the word his there. That's an, it's added, one might say, through a son. But for our sake, we'll use the word his son. God in times past, from the beginning of the world, spoke in many different ways, many different times. But no, he has limited himself. Or we might say even that the final communication of God, the full communication of God, the perfected communication of God, the fullest communication from God has now come to us by his Son. Think about that. I think that's glorious and wonderful. That God has revealed himself, not by sending a prophet or an angel or raising up a statue that can talk or speaking to one person in one subjective way. But God has sent his son, the one who speaks for him, the absolute and real Communication. That challenges me. Certainly when I, when I consider. We're coming from a Pentecostal charismatic background. And having people. Uh, for many many years having visions. Being part of that too. Visions and dreams. And words from God. And feelings and uh, insights from God and we try and communicate from God but the Bible tells us here clearly that God's final or complete communication from him about him comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and if we want to know who he is and what he wants we must look at the Lord Jesus Christ he is the Finished communication. In him and him alone. This writer, the Holy Spirit through this writer, is communicating that in the Son, there is the absolute picture, the absolute fullness of the, the, the conversation, communication. There is no higher knowledge, no hidden knowledge, no after knowledge. It's not the Son plus something else. There's no one to come after the Son. The complete and full and final message from God is the Son. It is in Him and through Him and by Him that we hear and see and know and understand God and his will. The writer then goes on. In, in verse 2. And saying. Whom 
He has appointed heir of all things through, through whom he also made the worlds. In my Bible it says, the word actually is ages. Aegons, the uh, times. It's used 32 times in the Bible and is often translated ages or forever. The idea is that it's age after age after age. We, we, we understand that as like the Stone Age or the Bronze Age or the Technological Age. doesn't matter when or where it is. I actually read something that said uh, that by whom we also made all time and space. I thought that was a very interesting modern translation. All time and space was made by him. So the writer, the Holy Spirit through the writer is telling us something awesome and amazing. Amazing. That this son has been appointed heir. That all things were made for him. They are for him. He will receive all of creation. All, not just this earth mud ball in which we live, this big puddle of water in which we live, but all of the cosmos, all of time and space belongs to him. From the earliest time when Adam awoke from his slumber and took his first steps until that last time when the heavens and the earth shall melt away like wax and God creates a new heaven and a new earth and we enter into the timeless eternity which is to come. Hard concept for us to understand. All of that time, all of that ages, all of that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are told that the creator became the creation. He walked among us. This is the picture that the Holy Spirit through the writer is trying to portray to us. He's trying to help us to see the magnitude, the supremacy, the the giantness, the awesomeness, the wonder of the one that he is talking about. This is no mere man. This is not some small deity. This is the one whom the Bible says breathed out the stars. This is the one who the Bible says holds all of creation in the palm of his hands and holds all things together by the the word of his power. The writer wants us to understand that the one whom he is talking about, whom you and I know to be Jesus, but he doesn't tell us that until 2 and 9, chapter 2, verse 9. He, beforehand, is just talking about the Son. And that's a very powerful concept in the mind of the Jewish people. When you talk about a son and an heir, that was a very big thing. That was the, the legal guardian. That was, the, that was the, the golden boy. You know, Emil likes to say that he's our, 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 my son and my heir. That he'll, he will one day inherit my kingdom. You know, <laughs> good luck with that. Uh, but for the, in the ancient world, the idea of a son, and it didn't have to be your natural son. It was one whom you legally recognized as the, the embodiment of all who you are. 
That they would own all that you own. That they would literally take on your mantle. Your mantle. They would walk in your authority and power. It wouldn't be like in Finland today, I guess in most European countries, when you inherit something, the government takes a percentage of it. You know, <laughs> inheritance tax, all tax is theft. Um, it, it didn't work that way. When the one inherited, he, he, he stepped into his father's shoes and he took on the whole persona personage of his father in all of his strength all of his authority all of his majesty and so the idea when he says his son right away you understand it's a very important person right away you understand that this is not some mere prophet deity priest this is not some created, just simple created being. We're talking about a unique individual. And he goes on, he goes on to tell us about this one again, that by whom he also made all the ages, the aeons, all time and space. Think about that. Think about that. Not just he created the world, you know. We, we, where did cows come from, boys? God made them. I used to ask my boys that in Sunday school. God made them. Jesus made them. The Son was instrumental in the creation of the world. During the six days of creation, Christ was there. And by him all things were made, the Bible says. This is the one. This is the one through whom God is communicating to us. This is through, this is the one whom God is revealing himself and has made known himself to us. The writer, the Holy Spirit through the writer wants you to understand and to know that this one is like no other. He's not just a mighty man. He's not just an impressive being. He is God. He is God. In verse 3, it says, being the brightness of his glory. Not clothed in the brightness of his glory. Not surrounded by the brightness of his glory. It's not like Jesus is dressed and shining. Oh, this halo and stuff. Jesus is the brightness of his glory. What does that mean? He is the splendor. He is the Shekinah glory. He is the wonder and the, mag the magnificent presence. It's Jesus. You want to see the glory of God? Look at Jesus. You want to know what the glory of God looks like? You must look to Jesus. Because he is the exact, or the, he is the brightness of the glory. You ever, ever looked into a bright light, looked at the sun? You know, and your eyes get hurt, or you look into your brain, like, ah, you can't see. Especially, you know, I'm sure Martin understands you're, you're sleeping and uh, you've been doing night shift, and the kids come in, turn the light on, and you're like, ah, I can't see. Your eyes are like burnt out of your head. Jesus is that brightness that burns the eyes out of your head, He is the splendor 
that is so splendiferous that you can't look at it. He is the wonder and the glory. This is the one whom, through whom God communicates to us. This is the one who has come to make God known to us. He is the final communication. There is no other. There will come no other communication from God except Jesus Christ. This is why we are told that the book is so Christ-centric. It rotates. It just focuses on Jesus all the time. It just revolves around him. It's all about Jesus. Lifting him up. Encouraging you to see how marvelous he is. How wonderful he is. What he has done for us. And then why we should live. Or why we should persevere. Why we should continue in the faith. The Bible tells us again in verse 3 part B. That he is the express image of his person. I remember I had a conversation with a young man when I was in Ireland. Uh, a guy that I went, a young man, <laughs> it's the same age as me. Uh, young, a uh, young man, again I said that. Uh, a guy I went to school with, hadn't seen him in years, 20 years or something. And he saw on Facebook that I was in Ireland and he reached out and says, Kyle, you mad man, are you in Ireland? I said, I am, let's go for breakfast. I said, okay. So we went out to breakfast and we were sitting in this cafe, trucker cafe, eating bacon and beans and sausages and Irish breakfast, most healthy breakfast in the world, big cups of tea. And we got talking and, and he said, so you're doing, still doing this pastor stuff, this Christian stuff? I said, I am indeed loving it. I'm, I'm in my 20-something year now. And he was like, that's crazy, that's mad, that's metal. And he said, well, I see myself as an atheist. And I said, really? You see yourself as an atheist? He says, I do. He says, why do you see? Because I just can't believe in God. Why can't you believe in God? So we talked on a little bit. And then it became very obvious that he wasn't an atheist. He was an agnostic. He, he, he didn't know. He said, well, I don't know. I can't, I can't really tell you because I don't have all knowledge. So there could be a God. And I said, okay, we're fine. So we were talking a little bit more. went on. And, and, uh, and he says, well, started talking about something else. And it turned out, well, well, you know, such and such happened in my life. And I was at the rock bottom. And I remember praying and asking God for help. And I said, but you told me you didn't believe in God. And then you told me you weren't sure. And now you're telling me that you think there is a God and you actually prayed to him? And he's like, well, I said, so your problem isn't that you, you don't believe. Your problem isn't that you don't know. It's your problem is that you don't want him. You want him to help you, but you don't want to bow the need to him. And he's like, yeah, well, well, if... If, if only he would come down and show himself. And I said, well, that would be hard because he's so big and we're so little. And if he came down, we'd be terrified. And I explained from the Bible when God came down and landed upon the mountain and the mountain was in fire and all the Jews threw themselves on the floor and were afraid. And when God spoke, they covered their ears and they said, don't speak to us, don't speak to us. Speak to Moses, but don't speak to us. Unless we be torn apart. They were so afraid. And I said, if God was to come down and land in the street there and now, you and I would be on our faces and we would... That'd be the end of it. Heart attack, we all came over. Because he's so great and we're so not. And he's like, that's true. That's true. Aye. And I said, how would we communicate to God? Because he's so big, the Jews were so afraid they couldn't speak to him. 
And I said, oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. And then he went on this little tangent about aliens and hybrids and stuff. And I said, well, that's very interesting that you should say that. I said, you know, we would need God that, I don't know, look like us. If he could come down, because we can't go to him because we're so little and he's so big. But if he could come down to us and perhaps present himself as one of us and walk among us and live a life like one of us and tell us and teach us. like when He's like, yeah, why hasn't God done that? And I said, have you not read the story about Jesus? He is God and he walked among us. And not only did he live among us, he lived a perfect life, but then he gave himself as the substitute on our behalf. That which we did not want him to do, that which we never asked him to do, that which we didn't even think about. All of the sin, all of the unrighteousness, all of the unbelief that keeps us from him. And the sentence of that, the guilt of that, the debt of that, he cancelled. He eradicated it. He made it no more in order that we might come unto the Father. The truth is you belong to Jesus. Whether you're a believer or not a believer, you belong to Jesus. All creation is His. The Bible tells us that he was the creator of all things. And if you make something, you own it. He owns us because he created us. We come from him. And not just the beginning. He didn't just begin the beginning. But rather, the idea is he is constantly creating. Constantly causing all things to be made. It wasn't his stuck everything together at the beginning of creation, you know, and then step backward, my job here is done, took a rest for a day. But the idea is he is continually making, you and I are who we are today because of Jesus Christ. It is he who maintained us and kept us. Why have we not passed into eternity? Died when we were infants, being hit by a truck, a plane falling out of the heavens and crashing, World War III happening, nuclear war happening. Why hasn't the corona taken us or whatever? Because Christ has kept us. By Christ's grace and mercy, He watches over us. Excuse me. He keeps us. It is Him. So when we look and think about Jesus Christ, I want you, I need you to stop thinking of Him simply as a man. Your faith is not based in just a man. He is just a man. But He is so much more. We've just finished Luke. Luke ends gloriously and wonderfully at the crucifixion and the law. Goes to the burial and the, the resurrection and then of course to the ascension. And, and it's a very inglorious ending, I think. It's very kind of mat- manufacturing. It's just this happened and this happened and this happened and then the disciples went back and they're all, oh. And we're not 
really give an insight into the glory of the person of Jesus. But here, the writer to the Hebrews, he's planetic. He's saying, I want you to see with real eyes. I want you to know who this man, this, this Jesus really is. He is the sun, the air. All things belong to him because all things come from him. He is the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So good, so, so, it hurts your eyes to look upon him. So splendid, it would break your heart and make you cry. He is the living embodiment. He is the, the absolute person of God. He, it's by him you know that God will not hate you. It is by him, Jesus, you know that our God is a merciful God. Remember the stories that we've gone through about the life of Jesus. The woman caught in adultery. Remember that? The, 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 the Pharisees bring her and throw the feet of Jesus in it. And Father, what's that in English? Accuse him. And they try and, try and force Jesus to condemn her because by the law she is guilty and there's only one only one sentence that is stoning to death and Jesus sits down and begins to draw in the sand we do not know what he drew in the sand but there we see patience and long suffering though she is guilty this is not a time of judgment and he, Jesus demonstrates the long-suffering of God, the patience of God, which brings about repentance. And whatever he draws in the sand lays conviction on the hearts of the accusers. And they all begin to leave from the eldest to the youngest. They leave. And all that remains is the young lady who had been caught in adultery. And Jesus looks on and says, Woman, where are your accusers? And say, she's like, Lord, they've all left. I don't know what's going on here. It's weird. I accuse you. Therefore, go and sin no more. There is the, the heart of God that believes in people that they can succeed, that gives people the opportunity and the chance at life. It is in Jesus we see who God really is. We're not. He's no longer veiled or shadowed. He, he no longer is in the background. Ambiguous and, and unclear and fuzzy. It is in Jesus Christ where he steps forward and all of a sudden he's in 4K, ultra HD, stuff that Frederick knows all about. You can see every pore, every hair. see every gray hair. Jesus steps forward and there and then we see who God really is. And the writer, or should I say the Holy Spirit through the writer, is demanding that we know. There's an old saying in English where a person nails their colors to the mast. It comes from the Napoleonic Wars time when Sailing boats, where wars were fought on the seas, and they were five kinds. If you've seen Captain Jack Sparrow, those films called, uh, I don't know, 
Captain Jack Sparrow people. Yeah. Where they have those boats, ships, and they fire cannons at one and they have fights on the sea. Parts of the Caribbean, yeah. thank you. And they, they have sea battles where there are explosions and they blow the mast off and the flags fall down. Well, in those times, when you want to surrender, you pull your flag down. And when you pull your flag down, everybody stops shooting at you. And you kind of sit and then you hoist a white flag or something to, to, to demonstrate that you surrender. Well, there was a, a, an incident, I don't remember the details, I don't remember the, the, the exactly what happened, but there was an incident where there was a massive sea battle. Hundreds of ships all firing at one another. And it looked as if the English side were really going to lose. And so there was a, 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 an officer on the ship said, Sir, sir, to the captain, we must draw down the colors, sir. We must pull down the flag and to demonstrate that we surrender. And the captain said, no. No, this is not the time to surrender. And he climbed up with the mast with a hammer and nails and he hammered the flag to the mast and said, we shall never surrender, we shall never turn back. And in the providence of God, they won the sea battle. But the idea is there that we nail our colors to the mast. We, we nail our flag. We, we, we make it impossible for us to go back, to surrender, to lay down ourselves, to retreat. And here in this few verses, the Holy Spirit, indeed the author of this sermon, homily, epistle, book, he from the very beginning wants to let you know where he stands. He wants to let you know where we stand as believers. In a time when many people were beginning to hide their faith and become a little bit more fluffy, less sharp, ecumenical, perhaps you want to say that way. They, they were believing in Jesus, but at the same time they would offer up sacrifices for their sins, where they would participate in the corrupt practices of the temple, was where they would once again participate in the Passover feast. And here there, there, there is this warning, this exhortation, this declaration that I will stand. I will stand. Dawn prayed this morning about Ezekiel drawing a line in the sand. Right? It was actually Moses, but you know, God bless him. Um, here in this epistle, the author is drawing a line in the sand and he's saying, All of you who believe in the Lord, come to this side of the line. And he is lifting up and magnifying and giving us the example of the Lord Jesus Christ because he wants you to know in whom you have believed and that he in whom you have believed is the greatest. His supremacy is so far beyond everything and anything that has ever been 
that it is laughable. And all of God's greatness, all of God's brightness, all of God's image is contained within that God-man, Jesus, the Son, the Inheritor. It tells us as we go on, running out of time, and you have a word, forgive me, that he, Jesus, the Son, upholding all things by the word of his power. Again, that Jesus hadn't just done these things, and the point is being, this is not something that happened long ago. Let me tell you a story of something that happened long ago. This is not that. He's not pointing them back to a time of their fathers, of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob. He's saying, now, this moment, in this breath, Jesus is upholding all things. I'm not telling you a story of what has happened. I'm telling you a story of what has happened, what is happening, what is going on. Jesus, he who created all things, he who is the brightness of the glory, he is the expressed image of God, he is maintaining all things by the word of his power. If you have ever been weak in your prayer life, that verse right there should motivate you to pray like a champion. That never give up or to give in. Because he maintains all things by his word. He speaks, it must happen. He, Jesus is not some weak needs, slimy, sticky hand kind of bureaucrat. He's not some sort of man pleasing sycophant who must come and say, ah, ah, Excuse me, my name is Jesus, and I would just like you know, to ask you if you could please possibly, if you can, please, I'm sure. If, but if you don't have the time, that's possible. And Jesus is not that way. The Bible gives us the image of when Christ returns, he shall have, uh, riding the white stallions or images, of course, and a sword will come from his mouth. Sword, but I don't believe there would be a, a real sword coming from his mouth, please. Let's not be foolish. But it is by the word of his authority. By his words. He is so powerful that his words can kill. He says it and that's the end of it. This is the Christ. This is the Son, the Inheritor. This is the one that we are believing in. This is the one whom God has spoken to you and to me. Through whom he has spoken to it also when it goes on, as if all that wasn't enough, if he's not like painting too big a picture, oh no, you're you're going on too much, you're making Christ too big, you're making this, this character of the Son too extreme, too impossible to believe in. He goes on. When he by himself purged our sins. <gasps> For a Jew, that's crazy. Because you could never be purged of your sins. Every year, year after year, week after week, day after day, you were always asking God to forgive your sins. You always, there was always a consequence. There was always something. They were bound to the system of sacrifice and rituals. And yet, here in this portion, the Holy Spirit through the writer tells us that this son purged our sins. 
And he did it by himself. Purge, literally to empty out, to rinse out, to completely cleanse from within, to there's nothing left by himself, not you and him together, not you and something to do with him, but he by himself with no aid or assistance from you or from any other was able to cancel all the sin debt. How much of your sin is that? If Christ has forgiven you your sin, and again, I think, ah, we have such a wrong understanding sometimes of forgiveness of sin. We think it's, we say, I'm sorry, Jesus, for my sin. And Jesus is like, I forgive you for your sin. And then we're like, thank you, Jesus. And he says, it's okay, try not to do it again. And then we go our own way. And then we say, yeah, I'm sorry, Jesus, was I sin. And he's like, oh, it's okay, I understand. It's not that. It's the idea of you are debt that you cannot pay. You're under a death sentence that you cannot escape. You're on the chopping block. You're the loose around your neck. And here comes one who releases you, who removes your head from the block and puts his own neck for the axe man's strike. Who takes your head from the noose and climbs up and puts it around himself. Jesus by himself cleansed all of your sin. All the consequences of your sin. All of the, the judgment that was stored up for you. That you've earned. The wages of your sin which is death. Jesus took them himself and obliterated, annihilated. There is nothing left. As far as the east is from the west, so he has removed your transgressions from you. They can never come together. Should that not be a cause for joy? I didn't hear that hallelujah there. You're all too part, all too reformed Baptists. You know the Pentecostal blood back in our movement. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Son, the inheritor, who by himself purged your sins. Not with a priest's help. Put the water on the baby, remove the old original sin. The hell with the devil, I said, his lies. Jesus did it. Jesus and Jesus alone did it. And we should rejoice in it. Oh, how much of your sin is left? How much of the consequence? And you were to stand before the Lord, and the, the account book of heaven was opened, and he would look at your account, and he would, what would he see there? 95% paid, 75% paid, almost all paid. You know, like your house loan. How much do you have left in your house loan? Oh, yeah. 10 years left, maybe, blah, blah, blah. In heaven, beloved. In heaven, it is paid in full. You'll stand before God and the book will be opened and there in red, stamped upon it is paid in full. Because Jesus himself has purged you of all your sin. And then the Bible says that then he sat down at the right hand and this for Jews would have drawn their 
minds. You can't say that. Once he's offered up the sacrifice, he's supposed to stand before the altar and offer up intercessions and pray and do stuff and come back tomorrow. The idea of sitting down after doing this gives the impression of accomplished, finality. It is finished. I know you don't know, but there's golden letters above my head that says it is finished. Full border. Completed. Here, Jesus is, or the Son, the inheritor, is sitting down at the right hand of majesty. Who would dare go and sit down? The idea that he, he's not just a prophet, he's not just a priest, king. In majesty, the work is finished. He has retired. He can put his feet up on his footstool now. He can relax because all the hard work is done. He can enjoy the glory of his victory. He is seated upon a throne, the right hand of majesty. For a Jew, that's crazy talk. That's madness. That's the idea of it. Well, what am I to do? What am I to do now?
perverted and, and, and transformed. Our minds have been infiltrated by this worldly view, this renaissance, this medieval view of this Jesus. Weak and defeated, pinned upon a cross. And we have this image of him as bare bones and almost starving. Quite pitiful, really. Unable to help himself and therefore not really able to help you or me. The Holy Spirit through the author would have you know the reality of the one in whom you trust. The one who is the word of God, the Logos, the final communication between God and man. Oh, beloved, let this feed your life. I don't want it to just be in your head. I want it to be in your heart. You know that. I want you to be able to live your Christian life with more boldness. That when you pray, you're able to come and say, Lord, I know that you have purged me of all my sin. There is nothing left. No, there's no more. No matter how much I might cling to my guilt, there is no more. I stand spotless and flat free before you in heaven. Oh, friend, I would have your prayer life become turbocharged. I would have you to bold, bold and hungry and ambitious for the kingdom, for the souls of men, that we would be like. David the child of David. You know David the child of David? When he went to bring those cheeses and breads and wines to his brother in the battlefield. And he gets there and they're all lying around not doing much fighting. And David being a typical child is like, I wanted to see some blood, you know. <laughs> I wanted to see some death and gore. Typical child. I can just imagine like my Levi like, ooh. And he hears Goliath strikes for him. Pulls out a sword, shakes his javelin, challenges the men of Israel, and all the men of Israel are like, I would that I just lay a sword foot. Got the dad's, that's just too comfortable. Or else I would, you know, I would take it out. The seven foot giant, you know, I'd take it out. It's all about technique, you know. And David, he's shocked and surprised and weird. Weirded out. Why? Because in his naivety, in his innocence, in his understanding that God is with us. And if God is with us, we can stand against us. This foolish barbarian is challenging our God. Let me on. Come on. Hold my coat. And now he strolls. Now he, he, I can just imagine the voice skipping out. Come down. No fear. No worry. Skip out, stop at the, the stream, pick up the stones, all the fish. Picking them up, put those seven stones in his bag. Skip it out. Meter and a half of nothing against the seven foot giant. I don't know what his meters, I'm sorry. And of course, Goliath gives this monologue as all the bad guys do. He you know, tells them his brother, I will destroy you and all of your people. All great bad guys give him monologue. And of course, David just says, This day, I will feed you to the birds and to the dogs. Because this battle is not mine, it belongs to the Lord. Now, of course, the stone that he hit him with was about the size of my hand. So it's not some small pebble. It's not some small 
stone being fired from a sling, it was the size of a baseball bat, or baseball ball. Yeah. Right in the face. Knocked him down, knocked him unconscious. David skipping over again. Da -da 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 -da. Pulls out this man's sword, which was like the size of your bed.
supremacy. Even the sovereignty of God in all things. That God is in control. Therefore we can approach him with boldness. Beloved, we have just started the book of Hebrews. We only looked at the first three verses. But already we have seen the glory of the Lord. That great final communication. That God has revealed himself. In his son. And that son is powerful and majesty, majestic and wonderful. And that is good news. But the gooder, better news, the gooder news, sorry, said, the gooder news is that you and I know this person. You and I are in relationship with this person. The son, the inheritor, the express image. We know him. He knows us. We're not strangers. The Bible says he is closer than a brother. Oh, that we could break free from the old life. That we would renew our thinking. Be transformed and changed. Oh, beloved. Do you really know Christ? Not necessarily you're born again and saved, but do you really know him in his revealed and manifest glory? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness, your mercy. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself and revealed your son so marvelously and wonderfully. Lord, truly we are fools. Truly, Lord, we are unable and inadequate and presenting you in your glory. We are truly grateful that you wrote it down in a book, otherwise we would make messes of it time and time again. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to know this Jesus, the Lord you, you who have made yourself known to us through your Son, that you'll help us to know you and your Son all the more. Forgive us, Lord, for being so influenced by the world by being so intimidated by the world, by being so worldly in ourselves, that, Lord, we have disarmed you in some sense. Lord, we, our faithlessness and our lack of courage is an inhibitor to you. We bring about judgment upon ourselves and upon our generation because we are not bold in our pro profession of faith in you. Lord, I beg of you, help us. Lord, as you reveal yourself more and more, as you reveal the splendor of Jesus, of the greater, better blessing that is in him than in any other system, we pray, oh God, that you would help us to trust you all the more. That, Lord, our trust would move in your enthusiasm and that we could do joyful hearts, enthusiastic hearts, that we wouldn't trail our feet, Lord, we wouldn't be forced into doing this or feel that we are being forced but Lord that we live as martyrs in our generation as witnesses testifiers oh God that we might have that joy and that peace that marks people who truly know you Lord we desire to slay giants we desire Lord to knock them down on their back with a stone Lord with a simple word Lord we desire that the death of organized religion and Oh, Lord, that you might send revival among your people. Oh, come, Lord, for we know that you can, for you hold all things according to your word. Lord, we pray.
pray. Come and move among us in power. We ask it for your glory. In Jesus' precious name. Amen.